You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon. We're still not in studio together, Jamie, so I can't tell what you're researching. We can't really talk about it during the break. Is there any definitive word from the NFL on whether fans will get thrown out of a stadium if they call Cam Newton Mac Jones moving forward? <laughs> I mean, I, I assume that's coming, right? That, that's yeah. got to be coming any time now. <laughs> well, usually the NFL takes its lead from the PGA. Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah, that's usually the NFL is, is known for being a follower in the world of sports in, in the United States. We had a lot of reaction to that, 960, 960-650-650. The PGA is ruling today that fans who call Bryson DeChambeau Brooksy and they yell the Brooksy taunts at him, that there's the possibility of expulsion from an event. Feels like they've overstepped a little here and they will actually encourage it to happen, that people are going to try to get away with it. Most people feel that it's overkill. You can react to that throughout the course of the show. But, yes, Cam Newton is the bigger news today. The former number one overall in 2011, the former league MVP in 2015, released, flat-out cut by the New England Patriots prior to the season starting next week. I had projected him as the day one starter. I didn't think it would last terribly long, but I also didn't see anything like this coming, Jay. No, I, I was certainly – I was very much under the impression or under the assumption that he was going to be the week one starter as well. I mean, I even thought it could last, you know, if not the entire season, a good chunk of the season. Maybe that's just me underrating Mac Jones, but I was definitely caught off guard by this. I was looking for former MVPs who got released just flat out cut by their teams, and every situation's a little bit different. You understand it with certain positions more than others. Sean Alexander in Seattle was a big deal. 26 months after he signed a massive contract coming off an MVP season, he was out, but he's a running back, and we've conditioned ourselves to expect that with that position. Kurt Warner was cut. Not long after winning a Super Bowl, an MVP in St. Louis. But Kurt Warner was a guy who was bagging groceries, playing playing Arena League football, and was this undiscovered gem. He wasn't a former number one overall pick. No, he didn't have the pedigree where you just assumed that after he won the MVP in the Super Bowl, it was going to continue for a decade after that. So even that one, a little, you know, he went on to obviously to fashion a good career for himself after leaving the Rams, but that one, you could make sense of it in context. Yeah, he went to the Giants, didn't work out particularly well there, then ended up in Arizona to be a backup, which is what most teams, if they consider bringing in Cam Newton, are going to view him as, and we all know that went far better than expected in the desert, and Kurt Warner led that team to a Super Bowl en route to what ended up being a selection to the Hall of Fame. Peyton Manning is a former number one overall, former MVP, who also was cut, released by his team, but it had come with a significant injury to his neck, and they had the number one overall pick in the draft, which was a surefire, no-brainer, you got to take Andrew Luck's selection. Yeah, so as shocking as it is to hear, oh, yeah, Peyton Manning got cut, again, you you peel it back a little bit. Okay, okay. it actually kind of made sense for them to do that. Yeah, but Cam Newton, this one feels strange. And we don't look at Cam Newton the same way, but we still thought that there would, first of all, a year ago, Jamie, we thought there would be more teams that were into Cam Newton than just one. And it was the New England Patriots, and I was a big proponent of it happening, not because I'm a Patriots fan, but I was really interested to see how creative – it would be because Josh McDaniels and Bill Belichick and what they boil up in their cauldron in New England, it generally translates into success. And early in the season, it looked like it was going to be pretty successful. Yeah, no, there were some flashes, right? It's easy to just kind of write off everything that happened with Cam Newton in New England last year, but he had some really good moments. It slowed down later in the season, but you're right. Early, it looked like it was going to be a pretty successful pairing. 
And part of the theory this year was, well, last year there was no real training camp preseason to get ready in the way that you would normally get ready to. It was a thrown-together operation, and now with time and having been together for a year, this will be much better for Cam Newton, and they'll know how to use him better, and they've brought in more weapons for Cam Newton, and even the defensive resources, it'll make New England a more competitive team, so he should find more early success than he did last season, even if he turns it over to Mac Jones. Absolutely nobody saw this coming. No, I did not see it coming. And you're right. All of those factors are at play, except also at play is they drafted a quarterback in the first round, and he came in and looked really, really sharp in training camp and the preseason. It's going to be really interesting to see if he gets a gig this year. And Cam Newton financially doesn't have to play, but Cam Newton two years ago financially didn't have to play anymore. So it's not just about that. And he is a guy who's always had a chip on his shoulder. I saw his Instagram post today saying, hey, don't anybody feel sorry for me. I'm good. Likely landing spots. Well, when we get Doug Farrar on the phone, we can talk to him about that. I know that they put together something at USA Today. They've thrown a few out there, including Baltimore, Indianapolis. I was surprised Houston wasn't on their list. Yeah, Houston, it's just so hard to say what's going on in that organization at any given time, right? And, of course, with the entire Deshaun Watson thing hanging over them as a franchise it's difficult to get a read on there's also just so much dysfunction at the front office level there as well so I agree with you from a football perspective on the field yeah okay maybe that makes sense but I also understand it's just really hard to predict anything to do with the Houston Texans it really is and I have no idea what's going to happen with Deshaun Watson is he ever going to play for that team again is he going to play in the NFL this year whether he's traded or not can they trade him doesn't seem likely right now but there's always that situation swirling around and can a team get a better deal and put aside its its morals and its ethics and just operate as a business yeah I can absolutely see that happening for a top tier franchise quarterback I'm sure that there are teams that would deal with the blowback that comes with Deshaun Watson's legal issues not being settled if he's played his last down there I could see Cam Newton ending up behind Tyrod Taylor Jeff Driscoll's the backup there right now yes it's not as though it's this deep quarterback stable and I know people have suggested Baltimore as well behind Lamar Jackson that makes sense other than the fact that Tyler Huntley looked really good in his last preseason game and he's on a rookie contract as well Yeah, that's the big issue there, right? As you mentioned in the first segment, okay, if you're just looking at Lamar Jackson and the way they run the offense and all of that, then it makes sense. But you actually take into account, well, you know what? They got a backup they actually feel pretty good about and who is doing some really impressive things in the preseason. So they might not be even in the market for an extra backup quarterback like you would initially assume they are. It's Man, it's tricky at this time of year when teams have already made their plans at quarterback. It's not easy to find potential landing spots that make a ton of sense. Doug Farrar's landing spot right now is on this show. He's the NFL editor for USA Today and a frequent guest of this program. He is good enough to use some of his time with us here today. Doug, thank you very much for doing this. How are you? My pleasure, guys. How are you this morning? We are well. Hey, we are in a world where anybody can be cut. Anything can happen. How shocking was this move in New England to you? Well, if you had said before, like, week two of the preseason, I would have been shocked. Uh, but Matt Jones played very well in the preseason. He showed that he has a command of the offense that New England prefers to run, which is not one with a mobile quarterback. They've had, you know, one season with Cam. It didn't go as expected for a number of reasons. Uh, they took Mac Jones 15th overall. Cam came back with a low ball one-year deal. You knew eventually this was going to happen. 
Um, the fact that it happened now, I think, has to do with two things. Mac Jones picking up the offense better, quicker than people expected and better than people expected. And Cam Newton's ongoing vaccination status, which is going to complicate his future in the NFL, to put it mildly. So, yeah, <laughs> that's kind of where it stands. I agree with that wholeheartedly. And there will be some of our listeners, you know this, you get some of the respondents on Twitter who will argue with that, but the rules are pretty clear with what the NFL did. It is a decided competitive advantage to have your team vaccinated. What are the implications of Cam Newton being released, being unvaccinated, unvaccinated, I should say, for other players around the league, perhaps including high-profile ones? Well, people can argue this. Uh, pro or con until the cows come home um, and the cows are still out. So there you go. Uh, the, cows are, the cows are rampaging at this point. Um, <laughs> certainly down here in America. Uh, the NFLPA negotiated with the NFL. Coaches are required to be vaccinated. Players are not. And I think the NFLPA thought that was a major win for the Players Association. In retrospect, if I were to, you know, pin Demora Smith down, he might say that, hey, maybe we made a mistake here because now you got guys who are in, you know, Carson Wentz, we don't know. Uh, other guys, we don't know. Kirk Cousins, hey, who knows what's going to happen with that guy, you know, that particular idiocracy in Minnesota. Um, with Cam, probably his best situation would be Washington because he has the familiarity with Ron Rivera, who was his coach from 11 through 19. Scott Turner, who's their OC, was his quarterback coach uh, his last two years with the Panthers. Ron Rivera has gone through his uh, struggles with cancer. He's beaten it, uh, but he is very pro-vaccination, uh, as you would expect anyone who is immunocompromised to be. Uh, the Washington football team has had the lowest vaccination rate uh, among players of any NFL team. And Rivera has gone out and blasted, in my opinion, uh, completely justifiably, anti-vaccination, disinformation, yahoots. And there's no way, even with all that familiarity, he's going to sign Cam Newton, even though Newton is better than Ryan Fitzpatrick, who is their starter. Uh, the, the football team uh, has you know, good targets, above average offensive line. I think they have the potential to have maybe the best defense in the NFL. This is a team that can run deep in the playoffs with a good quarterback, and I think Cam is still a good quarterback. But there's no way that's going to happen, um, you know, without Cam showing up with a double laminated vaccination card. I mean, you look in Dallas; there is a there are three elevator shafts between Dak Prescott and any other quarterback on that roster. I know they just they uh, cut Ben DiNucci. Uh, I think they cut another one of their backups already today. Uh, but Jerry Jones has said, we want everyone in here vaccinated. This is going to affect his future. It, you know, for multiple reasons, players signing who aren't players signing with new teams who aren't vaccinated have to go through a longer process. Um, as we're finding out with Carson Wentz, if you're not vaccinated and you're even a close contact, it takes you longer to get back to the team. The fact that you can be a close contact with other players, um, you know, Again, however you feel about this, and I don't want to get into that. I'm sure you guys get enough calls about that anyway, the fact that we're even mentioning it. Um, it is, as you said, a, a complete and total, inarguable competitive disadvantage to be an NFL player and to be, un, to be unvaccinated. That, that, whether you agree with it or not, that's just the way it is. 
And I completely agree, Doug, that it is going to make Cam Newton's search for a new team a lot more difficult, especially, you know, potentially coming in as a backup. It, you know, it's one thing to put up with a star level quarterback who doesn't want to get vaccinated. It's another thing to do that uh, with a potential backup. But just purely from a football perspective, you know, as you mentioned, you still see Cam Newton as a good quarterback. What did you learn from watching him in his one season with New England last year about what he still does well and what some of his limitations are at this point? It, well, the first couple weeks, and it, you have to remember, he came in to a, I mean, the terminology, the Earhart Perkins offensive system, which New England has run for 20 years. He ran that in Carolina through most of his time there. So he had the terminology down. But he had to get timing with a pretty iffy receiver group. Um, he was, you know, he was health compromised last year. He had, he had, uh, had throws with COVID himself. Why you would have COVID and still not get vaccinated is a mystery to me, but whatever. Um, and that affected his season. Being with a new team without a preseason affected his season. And he threw, I think, eight touchdowns, or eight, eight touchdowns, ten interceptions. He wasn't that great. And I think Cam is a guy who, you know, and their QB run game was very vanilla. And I think this is another product of not having a preseason to sort of put those things together. Um, I think he looks far more comfortable this preseason. So in the abstract, I think he is a above league average quarterback. I wouldn't call him great. Maybe he's at the bottom of the top 20. But there are teams for whom league average at quarterback would be an upgrade. And I'm not, ta- I'm not talking about the Texans. I'm talking about teams that have, you know, viable playoff windows. Look at the Colts. I mean, they've got nothing at quarterback right now. They're hoping Carson Wentz can come back. And if you watched Carson Wentz last year, you know how desperate that sounds. Um, the Broncos, I think, another possible top five defensive team. Maybe, you know, top two or three receiver core. They're going with Teddy Bridgewater, perfectly safe option. You put Cam Newton in there, and it elevates the room. You know, the Saints, same diff. You got Jameis Winston. Is he going to throw 30 interceptions again? We don't know. Taysom Hill, eh, come on. Let's, let's just stop. So you've got a lot of teams where he could be of benefit to them. Just it's, it's not so much the feeling is so high as the floor is pretty high too. And if you've got a good team, it's okay to have a a high floor, low ceiling quarterback. You can still get away with that to a degree. Um, So, you know, what Cam gives you in the run game is plus what he gives you as a passer is, Average to plus, depending on system, depending on fit. It's why I think Washington would be great, but as I said, it's not going to happen right now. You know, I I think he's he's a he's a viable starting quarterback in the NFL for a couple more years, and I think if he's you know rewarded accordingly from a contractual standpoint, I I think it's just fine. So obviously, a lot of the focus today is on Cam Newton for understandable reasons. But I do want to ask you about Mac Jones as well. What is it about Jones and his skill set that convinced Bill Belichick and the Patriots that he was the right guy for the offense as soon as week one this year? Well, I'll say this. In today's NFL, if you want to be a starting quarterback, if you don't have second reaction ability, if you can't break the pocket and make throws outside of structure, you would better have everything else tied in a very neat little bow. And Mac Jones has, like, no second reaction ability whatsoever outside the pocket. But he does have everything else. He has a command of the RPO game. He understands reads and progressions. Um, He was in a very schemed-up offense in Alabama 
but he transcended that at times. And I think he came into this and New England's offense, I've seen their playbook. It's a, you know, the ton of option routes, a lot of route combinations. This is not an easy offense to pick up. And I think Mac Jones was able to do with the part of parts of the playbook they gave him what, you know, they they wanted him to do. And I you know, he, he has shown the ability also under pressure to move in the pocket and still make downfield throws. Um, which, you know, Tom Brady has never been an out, outside the pocket guy. I don't think Tom's ever run boot in his life, but he's the best in the pocket mover, I think, in NFL history. That's been his saving grace. Now, in no way am I even closely comparing Mac Jones to Tom Brady because as much as, you know, there are certain blitz packages you see in the preseason, we haven't seen Mac Jones against the regular season NFL defense yet. So that, there's a caveat there. And they play the Dolphins in week one. Dolphins are a very multiple defense. So, you know, they'll bring their safeties down. They'll move their safeties back up. There's a lot of pre-snap to post-snap difference in what the defense does. So I'll be very interested to see, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, if Mac Jones comes out week one and throws four touchdowns against that, then, hey, you know, we've got liftoff and this is the right move. If he struggles in ways that maybe Cam wouldn't have, maybe then they, you know, people start looking back and go and going, maybe the Patriots went at this too soon. I don't know. But I think, you know, based on his college tape and what I've seen from Matt Jones in in the preseason, I I think he's done a a very good job, probably a little bit better than I expected. And apparently at Patriots Pro Shop, Matt Jones jerseys are currently sold out Already, not a surprise in that market. Doug Farrar of USA Today joining us here for a few more minutes on Rinto and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Seattle goes out and makes a trade for a cornerback yesterday. It's cut down day. What would surprise you in Seattle with cuts today? Um, well, with Pete and John, nothing, very, very little surprise. <laughs> um, I do find the Sidney Jones move interesting because – the thing about Seattle's cornerbacks this year, and and they've been saying this through the preseason, it's like, well, maybe this, maybe, you know, it, it surprised me. I, th- I believe they cut Trey Flowers. That kind of surprised me. Um, they traded for a guy from the Texans and then just cut him. Sidney Jones is, um, I think he's a good fit for this defense. Maybe they view him as a potential starter, which he has been <laughs> in the league before. He is, you know, kind of reminiscent of Shaquille Griffin. You, you know, he trails routes very well not really an aggressive closer but you know did some good stuff against guys like Devontae adams last year when he was the jaguars um in a a pretty unfavorable defensive system so i you know i think there's me on that bone i think he can still be a good player um as far i mean i don't know with pete and john you know knowing how they operate it would be like cutting russell wilson would surprise me um anything else i don't know (laughs) what about rashad penny Former first-round pick. He's fallen out of favor in Seattle. Obviously, it wouldn't surprise us if they tried to move him. Would you be surprised if they cut him? At this point, no. I think Alex Collins did enough to to make his case, uh, both as a runner and a receiver. Still a really nice fit in that offense. The thing with Penny and, you know, Carol and Schneider have a weird history with first-round picks, either trading them away or just, monumentally reaching for guys. And I think Penny was the biggest reach. Well, I remember watching his college tape after that pick was made and thinking, 
you know, decent back, second or third round grade. I don't see anything that he does exceptionally well. Um, I know that the talk was that he got lighter this off season. He was fully healthy. He's going to make a difference. And I, I really didn't see it. And it gets to the point where you're like, if you're a Seahawks fan, you're watching him going, well, he gained three yards instead of two, so that's a really big upgrade. Well, it's a 33% upgrade, but you want more than that. So at this point, I, you know, objectively, I, I don't think you can say anything but that he's been a disappointment, and disappointments tend to get cut. You know, Doug, for the second time this training camp, uh, the Seahawks have one of their starting safeties holding in at training camp, not participating. You know, they got the deal done with Jamal Adams. Now Quandre Diggs is, is in a similar situation. And, and especially, you know, as you said, they're making these moves at cornerback. They're trying to find the right uh, solution there. Given that uncertainty, I mean, how important is it for them to have Quandre Diggs at starting, sa- starting at safety in week one and happy and under contract and all of that? It's immeasurably important for two reasons. Number one, and I like guys like Alton Robinson. Um, I think Carlos Dunlap, if he's there a whole season healthy, ton of potential, great player still. But that pass rush is undefined. Cornerbacks are undefined. And if you want to keep augmenting the pass rush by blitzing Jamal Adams, well, when you blitz Jamal Adams, he doesn't get home. He doesn't tend to replace Jamal Adams where he's supposed to be in coverage with other players. So last year, um, and it, 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 the stats show it, and it was proven out on tape, when Jamal blitzed and didn't get home, Seattle's pass defense kind of fell apart. If you don't have a deep third eraser, which Quandary Diggs has proven to be, then you have, a, you, know, you have yet another problem that Seattle, who's kind of trying to hold its defense together at certain positions of spit and bailing wire, you're, you're multiplying these issues that already exist, and I think if you don't have him on the field, you don't have anyone else in the roster who can take the deep third and just hold it, you know, with post, with seam, with stuff like that. You don't really have anyone else on the roster who can do that. Jamal Adams can do it to a point, but not with the quickness and flow that Quadra Diggs has. Now, spending, giving two different safeties on the same team high-dollar contracts is unusual, I would say the only team that does it right now is the Bills with uh, Jordan Poyer and Micah Hyde. But Poyer and Hyde are a top three safety duo. And they're a big reason I have the Bills going to the Super Bowl this year. So if, if that's, you know, if you have undefined positions all across your defense, and the Seahawks do, you got safety on lock, then you pay those two guys. They need Quandre Diggs. They need him week one. We didn't even ask you for a Super Bowl prediction. You gave us half of it anyway, Doug. That's why you're awesome, man. Thank you very much for doing this today. We will do it again soon. All the best to you and yours. All right. Well, if, if I don't come back on, the other half is the Packers. So there you go. Oh, all right. Mm, Aaron <laughs> Rodgers in maybe his final season in Green Bay going to the, the big yeah. dance. I'm, I'm hoping for that kind of complicated offseason, yes. I like it. Thank you, Doug. That is Doug for our of USA Today. He's got the Bills and the Packers in this in the Super Bowl. You can make an argument. Two teams that went to their respective conference championship games last year, yep. falling short in each case. I would take that as a Super Bowl matchup right now. Absolutely. Two fun teams, two star-level quarterbacks. Let's go. Try this on for size, by the way, as we digest the Cam Newton news of the day and Mac Jones and all of it. Josh Allen is the oldest starting quarterback in that division. <laughs> 
<laughs> that is wild. The turnover that we've seen in that division. I mean, obviously starting with Tom Brady, but all of a sudden to have Josh Allen be the seasoned veteran in that division is crazy. Josh Allen, Tua Tagovailoa, Zach Wilson, Mac Jones. Those are your opening day starters in the AFC East. This is a great stat that just came out. The last time a division opened a season, this is from ESPN Stats and Info, the last time a division opened a season with four, four starting quarterbacks, 25 years of age or younger, Allen's the old man at 25, it was the AFC East, and it was in 1985. Wow. Dan, Dan Marino, Ken O'Brien, Tony Eason, and Art Schlichter. You would like to be the Dan Marino of that group yes. and not the Art Schlichter of that group. Yeah, you're definitely aiming for Dan Marino out of that group for sure. It's Scott Rentoul, it's Jamie Dodd, and I guarantee that almost none, if any of our listeners, follow this on a regular basis, and yet it's probably, in fact, I will say unequivocally, the most compelling story we have seen in the last 24 hours, and we will get to it next right here on Rentoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Now back to Rentoul and Sermon. Thank you, John. I didn't remember Art Schleister playing in the NFL. I was in... I was an NFL infant in those days, and he didn't last particularly long. So thank you for the correction on my pronunciation. Scott Rental, Jamie Dodd, had you ever heard the term Bishop Sycamore prior to yesterday? I, I definitely, definitely had never heard of Bishop Sycamore. And probably there are people in our audience right now that are unfamiliar with the term. Yes. But those who saw this story know exactly what I'm talking about. Look, Jamie, I exist at a time in my life, and I'm of a generation where, because I met my wife when I did, I never did the online dating thing or the apps like Tinder or Bumble or whatever they're all called. No, I snuck in just under the wire as well. Yeah, okay. got, got locked up, you know, so I, I, I have zero experience whatsoever with that world. Now, a previous show that I worked on, I had a single co-host who was in his 30s. I had a single yes. producer who was in his 30s. So I heard about them all the time. I'm pretty familiar with how they operate and how you swipe and which way and what happens and all of that sort of thing. I'm very familiar with how that happens. I just have no personal experience in that. And what I think happens often enough, and this is pretty reasonable to expect, is that people might pump up their bio a little bit on those sites. Yeah, I have a sense that that happens, you know, from time to time, let's put it that way, that maybe there's a little bit of false advertising going on in online dating. Who among us has not pumped up their resume a little bit at some point? Have you done that? Mm-hmm. Um, Probably. I mean, you always try. You may, Well, here's the thing. You're trying to paint it in the, in the most positive possible light while still remaining truthful, right? So I don't know. Have I crossed the line? I'd have to go back and check, but probably. Let's put it that way. I'm not saying that you worked at a gas station and pawned yourself off as a petroleum <laughs> engineer, Jamie. I'm not suggesting you would do something like that. But look, most people at some point in their life, they have made whatever role they had sound a little bit better. And I imagine there's a lot of people on these dating sites that do do a lot of that. Scotty, maybe I'm just playing coy because I don't want to reveal how I got this job at Sports <laughs> yeah, at 650. Okay. I don't want anyone, you know, digging back into the file, the personnel file. If you're wondering how the hell this all relates to sports, here's how. Because if any of you out there, and there are probably some of you, that have made a match online on one of these apps or one of these sites, and you've said, okay, this looks pretty good, and boy, that's exactly what I'm looking for, and then you showed up for your date or your first meeting only to find out that the profile you clicked on doesn't quite resemble the real-life version of the person you're meeting. 
I've got a sports story for you. That's definitely what this feels like, isn't it, Jamie? It's exactly what it feels like. I've seen a lot of people call it like catfishing even, right? Which is a step beyond where you're creating an entirely fake profile to try to lure someone in. And that's a portion of this because there is something completely fake about this story. Here's the deal, and it's difficult to find an equivalent in this country. We know how important college football is in the States. And because college football is so important, high school football is so important. And people go to those games, and they know the players, and they know who the big recruits are year after year after year, Jamie. Yes, it's, it's a big, big deal down there. And there are a lot of prep schools, and we talk about this in basketball as well. You get to a certain level of hoops, well, you better go to a prep school because you're going to play with some of the best talent in North America, and you're going to showcase your skills against the other best talent. And that will give people a better context for where to recruit you or which schools are going to recruit you and how big of an offer you're going to get. So this happens all the time in high school football in the States. IMG Academy is one of the big entities in this world not surprising and if you're in the football world you may have heard of it michael o'connor for example jamie who is one of the backups with the stampeders the quarterback who won a, a ubc won ubc of Anier cup in his first year he was an img academy product canadian kid went down to img because he had the skill set and felt that was the best way and ended up at penn state as a result of that yes it's a very very common path for high-level athletes who have you know, not only D1 aspirations, but also professional aspirations, and not just in football, not just in basketball, in a lot of different sports. It's kind of a finishing school for extremely high-level young athletes. So it will come to the surprise of none of you that a team like IMG Academy and other prep schools around the United States are featured regularly enough on ESPN. They get that platform from time to time so that college football fans can see for themselves and they can see some of the recruits they have coming in or they can look and say, oh, boy, that's a guy I'd want to get. There are showcase games, and there are a lot of elements to this, but the bottom line is this. ESPN, if you want to use the term catfished, that's what happened because IMG Academy on the weekend played a team called Bishop Sycamore. Well, it's not quite a fictional team, but so many elements of the story are fictional, Jamie, and it become very, became very apparent on Sunday. Because what happened on Sunday is IMG Academy and Bishop Sycamore, which was a heavy underdog going into the game, played, and it became apparent very early Bishop, Bishop Sycamore, Jamie, was not what it was alleged to have been. It's not what it told everybody it was. Yeah, so the way this works is for these kind of, you know, at the start of the season showcase games that ESPN point put, puts on, they have a partner, a kind of marketing partner, whose job it is is to arrange the matchups, right? So this fictional, again, it sounds weird because they went out and played a football game, so they're not entirely fake, but basically what it is is a fraudulent high school called Bishop Sycamore managed to lie and convince the promotional partner, hey, we're a big-time, legit high school. We have tons of D1 prospects on our roster. We're going to be a great fit for this showcase on national TV to go up against the national powerhouse in IMG. Now, to be somewhat fair to the promoter and the promoter and the agencies that got between ESPN and ESPN should have done its due diligence as well, but everybody involved in setting this game up, they got duped, but no one else really wanted to take this game. It's been a weird time. We all know that. The past year and a half, 
there's been a lot of sports canceled. So that has affected recruiting classes. That has affected the NHL entry draft. It's affected a lot of things in sports for a lot of teenage athletes. IMG didn't play much last year, if at all. A lot of these schools didn't. So in trying to line up games this year, hey, IMG would like to play the quote-unquote blue bloods of prep schools, but a bunch of them weren't willing to take the game, according to the promoter anyway. Hey, the top five schools in Ohio didn't want to take it, but this Bishop Sycamore came along and said, we'll take the game. And we know we're a heavy underdog, but we do have some D1 prospects, and obviously they inflated that. This isn't even a school. It's not a no, real school. It's completely made up, yeah. And as you began to dig into this, what was of utmost concern at the beginning was the health and safety of the players involved. They were playing a much more physical, much better team that became apparent very uh, very early, and they didn't have many players on the roster. A bunch of players were playing both ways, Jamie, and so early in this game, the commentators allowed while broadcasting this, they have a clip there where they say, look, we were told they've got a bunch of D1 prospects, and we were told we haven't been able to verify this, and watching what we're watching, this is a health and safety issue all of a sudden. Yeah, and there's so many layers to this, okay? Because it was a health and safety issue because they're playing against this incredibly, you know, this much more developed, physically impressive team, right? Which, when that happens in football, yeah, it's a health and safety issue. It's also a health and safety issue because apparently, this this game happened on a Sunday. Apparently, Bishop Sycamore had also played a game on Friday night. That's not your typical turnaround time for a game of high school football, right? When you're trying to do as much as possible to give the athletes time to recover and get back into game shape. And again, you know, Bishop Sycamore, well, you know, no, those are different players. Those weren't the same guys, but you go back and look at the tape and no, actually, those are the same players who are playing Friday night. And then you ask to play again against a much more talented team on Sunday. Their roster had about 30 to 35 players. A bunch of those players were trying to play both ways. So that's the first level of the onion. Okay, you put these guys in a bad spot. You lied about your resume of a bunch of these players. Now they're being asked to play two football games in three days, which shouldn't be possible. And I know we all look at young athletes and say, hey, they can hack it. It's okay. Two football games in three days against this level of competition. That shouldn't be happening. I think most of us can agree on that. So then they start digging further, Jamie. And it turns out they made the whole damn school up. It doesn't even have a home. They started looking yep. at addresses that they've listed over the last couple of years as to where this school is. There are different buildings belonging to different institutions. Then people dug even further. Well, the coach has an arrest warrant for fraud out there. That might have something to do. That might have something to do with the fact that when they started to get this thing going, because it didn't used to be called Bishop Sycamore. Apparently it was called something else. Back in the day, 2018, when they first got this thing going, well, they got a young athlete who was recruited to go play there to talk. The undefeated did this. He started telling stories about what it was like. He said the first couple of months that summer, he gets recruited. He was told all of these things. He's like, they had brochures. They told us about all this high-level talent that was going to be coming in. Well, he shows up, and they're living in a hotel. It's in the summer. There's no school to attend because they're getting ready for the season. Yep. Hey, as teenagers, they thought this was pretty great. We're living in a hotel. Turns out that while they were living there they bounced every single check and they meaning the coaches the organizers the people who were behind this so that's probably where the fraud comes in they didn't attend a single class according to this player yeah. now we start to dig into the background of a bunch of these players and you find out 
A bunch of them aren't even high school students. No. They're not even high school age. They're junior college dropouts <laughs> who are trying to get a second chance to get on somebody's radar, and and this is how they've sold these players on it. It's insane. It's wild. It's I have never seen a story quite like this. And that's one of the funniest wrinkles to me because, you know, as you said, they're playing this game against this, you know, powerhouse prep school IMG and the announcers calling the game on ESPN are just openly basically questioning, you know, this is unsafe. The players from Bishop Sycamore, they're in over their heads. They're not a physical match for IMG. Like, I hope we get out of this without an injury. That's basically what the announcers are saying. And it turns out the guys that everyone's worried about are like junior college age. They're not even high school age. They're 19, 20, 21, and they're still out there getting physically embarrassed by the team from IMG. Just a horrible, horrible look for everyone involved. And by the way, as you mentioned, the coach, the you know supposed head coach of Bishop Sycamore, who had a, a warrant for fraud, uh, he's been fired now. So, I mean, I don't know how you get fired from a job that barely exists in the first place. But, like, step one, if I had a warrant out for my arrest for fraud, I would probably be not be arranging my fraudulent high school football team to appear on ESPN and, and for myself to get a bunch of screen time on ESPN. I don't think that would be my first move. Didn't work out so well for him either. If you ask the question, what do you have to do to get fired from what is somewhat a fictional football team, you now have your answer. <laughs> How do you get fired from a fake job? <laughs> this is how you do it. Well, technically he coached, and technically there's a team, and technically there are players. They're just nothing like they claim to be. And one of the worst parts of this story, is obviously there's the putting the kids in the horrible position they put them in, lying to them, the fraud of all. There's also, like, the genesis of this team, they used church funds. Like, they took yeah. money from a church to fund it, and I have no idea how wealthy that church was, but, like, They've lied to a lot of people along the way. They've taken money. They've, Who knows what these guys are, are really up to? Man, it's a bad story. So who looks worse in all of this? Is it? Is it the coach? Is it ESPN for actually televising this game? Because the headline on every story I read was, here's how ESPN got duped yep. by Bishop Sycamore. Yeah, it's. I mean, there's a lot of blame to go around here. And it really does just show you, you know, College athletics are such a big deal in the United States that if you can convince people, you can help them get a scholarship, you know, that goes a long way to committing this kind of fraud, right? Because that's that's what's at the root of it. They're going to parents and kids and saying, hey, we've got this pipeline to D1 schools and they're, pr they're printing up all these brochures and pamphlets that, you know, claim to say, look at all these places we've placed kids. If you come to us, you're going to get a chance to get a scholarship to a D1 school. And of course, they're charging the parents and the kids for the opportunity, right? So that's that's where they're making their money. That's why they're running this whole scam it does feel like, and I know ESPN's kind of put their hands up and said, look, we we broadcast what, you know, what our partner comes and says, hey, these are the two teams, and we put it together. But there does have to be some more due diligence before you just go to air with something that is obviously ridiculous on its face like this is. I agree with that wholeheartedly. And doesn't it smack of a larger problem that's out there when it comes to high school-aged or amateur athletes, wherever we want to categorize this right now, those who are coming up through the ranks, that probably everybody involved, I'm not talking about Bishop Sycamore, but I'm talking about the promoter and the marketing agency and ESPN and even the idea of some of these prep schools, it starts in a really good place. It starts with, hey, 
let's see if we can get a better opportunity for some of these kids. We'll give them a better environment to play, and we'll give them better facilities. Hey, we're going to put high school kids on ESPN. I was a high school football player. I was a high school athlete at one point. Jamie, the thought of being on television where somebody yeah. could watch you was a pretty incredible opportunity. Yeah, it is. And But you're right, then it is so often distorted. And I'm sure some of our listeners have stories about, you know, whether it was experiences they went through or something their kids have been through of, you know, shady coaches on travel teams who were making certain promises that weren't followed through, right? Pay for play opportunities that, you know, hey, if you come, you pay, you got to pay this fee, but then we'll help your kid get a shot at major junior. And then who knows, right? Like those exist in the hockey world too. They're not as high profile and, and as kind of comical as this one is, but you're right from the guise of, you know, don't you want to give your kid the best opportunity? A lot of shady stuff can sneak in under that. I'm a parent. I see it. I see it already, Jamie. And it's something that I've been wary of for a while because I've talked to friends who've had kids who play sports, some of them good, some of them not so much. And while there are some legitimate resources out there and some people doing things for the right reasons, it's pretty fair to say there are other people that are just trying to make a buck. And they're pretty good salespeople. Hey, one of the lines you will often hear when you've got kids – that are coming up is, well, you don't want your kid to fall behind. Right. You don't want your kid to fall. And if, if your kid doesn't do this, well, and as a parent, most people are trying to do the right thing for their kid. And we might not all agree on what the right thing is, but I think it genuinely comes from that place with most people. Hey, I just want to give my kid the best opportunity. He or she loves this particular sport, and who am I to stand in the way? I should afford my child every opportunity to excel at something he or she loves. Yes, that's exactly where it comes from. That's what makes it, in a way, so easy sometimes for these scammers to prey on people, right? Because they're doing it out of dedication and love for their child and, and trying to help their child. And again, you know, I've seen some of the parents in of the kids or young adults involved in this Bishop Sycamore thing, and that's exactly what they're talking about, right? Is, hey, I wanted to give my kid one last chance. You know, it didn't work out for whatever reason in high school, but I wanted to give them that one last chance to chase their dream, that's such a powerful and understandable emotion, but it's also something that people can prey on. Tyler texts in, how did an elite prep school not know these players? I wouldn't be shocked if they were in on it at some level. Look, IMG probably knows that a bunch of those players aren't the same type of players that they were trying yeah. to bring to their academy. But, Jamie, this happens all the time in college football, for example, where teams, they schedule games against teams that are far lesser opponents and that's fine because they want to get something out of it and in those cases money is paid i don't know if money exchanged hands here what does img want to do wants to get its players on television wants them to look good they don't really care if it's an inferior opponent well and for img i mean they have trouble finding opponents right as you yes. detailed you know there's not necessarily a lot of high schools lining up to play a school like IMG who exists only to churn out extremely high-level prospects, right? Like, yeah, there are other schools like that too, and sometimes they do match up. But if you're just, you know, a normal, typical, run-of-the-mill high school program in Florida, Alabama, Texas, whatever, that's not necessarily an enticing game for you to take because you say, okay, yeah, I like our school, I like our program, but what do we gain by going up against a team that's as stacked as that? So I think from IMG's perspective – they're just, okay, hey, someone wants to come play us? Great. Let's do it. Let's go. Let's not ask that many questions. Now, I don't know how Bishop Sycamore went about recruiting all of its players, but now that the the gig is up and they've got to take a different direction if these people want to continue to have a football team, do you think they'll call on a guy like Bob Hartley for the next promotional video? <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't know about that. We can't really give you the audio to do this justice, but I would encourage all of you at some point today, if you're in need of a laugh, go look up this video. You go look up this video that Bob Hartley's in right now, avant-garde head coach over in Russia. It's a two-minute, 20-second video of Hartley over in Russia. He's not a guy that we think of of good times, Bob Hartley, always rolling, always, always funny guy. This is pure comedy what he's doing. I am looking <laughs> I'm looking it up right now and just watching it even on mute, the outfit he's wearing, the the context of everything he's doing. Bob Hartley seems to really be living the best version of his life in Russia. I will say that for him. He's milking a goat in this video, Jamie. <laughs> he sure is. He sure is. Like he really is just taking the piss and good for him, but it's funny. I I have no I would never have expected Bob Hartley to be the central figure in something like this. No, that was not his reputation uh in the NHL to say the least. Speaking of Russia, did you see the report out there that there is a contract offer from SKA St. St. Petersburg? Sport 24 reported that SKA St. Petersburg has offered Jake Vertanen a contract. I did see that. I can't say I'm particularly surprised. I think if you just look at Jake Vertanen's situation, you know, obviously with the off the ice legal issues that he's going through right now, but also just his on ice performance and how underwhelming that has been throughout his career, I don't know why an NHL team would roll the dice. I know there were reports earlier in the summer that the Carolina Hurricanes were kind of kicking the tires. That didn't seem to go anywhere. Still on the sh- still on the market and. Yeah, it kind of feels like it might have to be the KHL if he wants to continue his professional hockey career. What what out there, what about Jake Vertanen is so enticing that it's going to inspire an NHL team to take that risk? Well, if there weren't the legal issues, he, someone would have given him a contract in the National Hockey League. That's fair. Yeah. However, but there are the legal issues, right? There yeah. are the legal issues, and those are far more important than playing hockey, and those certainly need to be taken care of before anything can move forward in his career. Does he wind up in Russia. Is that where the next step of his career is? I'm not sure. There's just a report out there about that right now. It's Scott Rentoul and Jamie Dodd. We'll let you turn things over to the big show in Calgary on the eastern side of the Rockies. We will forge ahead here in Vancouver. Lots to dive back into, including a little bit of baseball. We haven't talked much baseball today. Adnan Verk is going to join us in the final hour of the program on Rentoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. We referenced it earlier in the show. It's one of the things that put Jim Rome on the map. He was doing very well as a sportscaster, just not the level we know Jim Rome at now when he was doing that show. And that was one of the things that everybody saw, and it's worked out pretty well for him. Now, with the fan that yelled, attaboy, Brooksy, or whatever he yelled after Bryson DeChambeau had just missed his putt on the sixth playoff hole championship and waited till he walked by and said, now, if DeChambeau's face-to-face with him, would the fan, in your estimation, Jamie, have had the stones that Jim Rome had in that situation <laughs> to say to what is likely a much larger Bryson DeChambeau, would he have said it to his face? No, I don't think so. There's no chance, right? You, as you say, you know, he's waiting for Bryson's back to be to him, right, because he's already passed him. Then he's leaping in to take his shot. He's not doing it face-to-face. Yeah, there's a lot of people who are down on Bryson DeChambeau here. Should they be down on the PGA Tour? It's obviously a part of him asking or him talking to the PGA. And if you miss this somehow, it's Rintoul, it's Jamie Dodd, in all week for Karen Sermon. 
Adnan Verse going to talk some baseball with us, maybe a little hockey a little bit later in the show as he works for the NHL Network as well. The PGA came down today and said, look, this has gone too far. The Brooksy stuff with DeChambeau, it's crossed the line now. And basically what crossed the line was that one incident because it happened yep. a bunch of times during the tournament on the weekend. But that was in a tough moment where you probably just let the athlete cool down, wallow in the fact that you just lost in this extended playoff, just let the guy be. And this fan decided to poke the bear. DeChambeau at the time whirled around, and I guess he didn't look like he was too happy about it. Don't know what his intent was when he whirled around. Thought better of it in the moment and got security step in and get the guy removed and then carried on his way. But had they been face-to-face, who knows? So the PGA stepped in. Well, anybody who does the Brooksy thing, you face expulsion from a tournament now. Me thinks, you thinks they've gone too far on the PGA with this, that it's actually setting themselves up for something worse because of the way they're coming down with this new bylaw or rule, whatever you want to call it. Was there anything the PGA should have done whatsoever? It's a really interesting question because obviously, and, and you know, I think the one of the important things to remember here is like we're talking about golf, the sport which they don't want to have a, a they don't want to have the same type of atmosphere that hockey and football have, right? Where it's much more boisterous, fans can go a little a little bit extra, right? Golf has this idea of, you know, it's a genteel sport. We're all just out here like golf clap is a term, right? Just the polite, gentle clap, right? That's that's kind of the traditional image of golf. And I think that's the position they're coming from here. But it does feel like they're treating Bryson DeChambeau with kid gloves a little bit here, right? And I I would be even interested to hear from Bryson, is that what he wants? Does he want to be treated kind of differently than everyone else is being treated? Because that's how this move is going to be perceived. I don't know if there's an easy solution. I think a lot of our listeners would say there's not even a problem here. Like the only problem is on Bryson's end because he's letting this get to him. I kind of get that as well. You don't want to have ugly interactions between your fans and your athletes, your stars, on a regular basis. I get that from the PGA's perspective, but this doesn't seem like it's going to do anything to solve the problem. Marcus and Gibson says, is Bryson really going to fight a fan if he says it to his face? He's a professional athlete. It would be career suicide to do that. No, I don't believe that he would, Marcus, but I also don't believe that the fan who waited until he'd gone by but was still within earshot would have said it to his face. And that was more my point. I don't think the fan steps up. I think it's, hey, I'll be cool, but if there's any threat that I have to say this to this guy's face and there might be consequences, I'm not going to do it. That was more my point. I don't think DeShambo would have laid somebody out, even though you can make the argument. I've used that term all week and, and more figuratively than literally, but with the behavior there, just in the tough moment it was for Bryson DeShambo, just lay off. You deserve a punch in the face for doing something like that. I'll disagree with you a little bit, and this is why I think it's a slippery slope for the PGA, Jamie. I agree from a traditional standpoint that golf has been this reserved. Yeah. They want to go in a different direction. You've seen this over the last few years. COVID aside, during normal times, things like the Phoenix Open get a lot of acclaim. Right. The Waste Management Open, as it is now called. The 16th hole, you're seeing more environments like that. You're seeing more environments that are saying, okay, we won't go that far. It's not going to be a party hole, but we want the crowd to be a little more involved. We want a little more interaction. And, okay, we can't have it go the same way that it does in other sports because of the proximity and because of the some, some of the tradition of the game. But I do feel like the PGA wants more of that involved, and so this is a really difficult issue for them to navigate. 
Yeah, it's a good point. And it does put them in a tough spot because you're right. They're kind of caught between golf's past. And as you say, they're trying to maybe move it into the future a little bit in some ways. But then something like this comes up, which would not be a talking point in any other sport, right? Like, choose any other sport. If fans are yelling a rival player's name at that player, we're not even talking about it. It's something that the league needs to step in and correct. Now, I understand, you know, you're so close to the players and there's the issue of concentration and all that in golf. I get that there are differences, but it really, it's only an issue because golf has this tradition of, as you say, being a little bit more reserved. But you're right. They are trying to think about some ways to move beyond that. It's Man, they've painted themselves in a difficult situation here, right? I, I, I can imagine there's a lot of people at the PGA after they've seen how people have reacted to this news kind of thinking, ah, man, I wish we had taken a little bit more time to think about this one and get it right before we made our move. Graham in Surrey says, as long as you're not talking while he's taking a swing or putting, it shouldn't be a big deal. Get over it. And look, the phrase in general, attaboy, Brooksy, way to go, Brook." That's not a big deal. I agree with Graham on that. However, it opens that door of, okay, should you be able to say whatever you want? Should you be able to say whatever you want? And this was more context of a moment where there are certain times just let a person be. That's what bugged me about it more than anything else. And I'm not some great Bryson defender. Quite frankly, he's behaved too petulantly too many times for my liking. I'm not a big fan. I felt badly for him in that moment. He's just lost in a gut-wrenching fashion. Just let him have a little bit of time. Don't see there's a difference between cheering for a win and trying to rub in a loss. And that's what that fan was trying to do. Yes, and I think there's you can not like Bryson and also not like the PGA's decision here and still have a problem with that what that fan was doing, right? And I think that's kind of the camp I find myself in not that I'm a big Bryson hater necessarily but I think the PGA has gone too far here but I also understand that like as a fan I would not condone the behavior of that one individual fan and again I do think it matters you know the difference of being in a gallery when they're out on the field and saying something versus having that slightly more kind of intimate setting right where you're really really trying to get under the person's skin in a moment where they've just suffered a big loss I I think there is a difference there and it seems like the PGA has taken that one incident and they've targeted everything that happens in the course of a tournament, everything that happens on a golf course based on one in- one incident that was in a very different context. Texter unsigned says the shift in Bryson fandom began to swing when people found out he was friends with the Trumps, the open celebration picks and is against getting vaccinated. I've gone from wanting him to dominate to not. I don't think that's where it swung. I think maybe for you as a listener and Correct me if I'm wrong, listeners. Dunbar Lumber text message inbox is open at 650-650. You can jump in and say, yep, that's where it changed for me. I think it was before that. I think it was the relative arrogance with which DeChambeau has conducted himself with. I like the innovation. I think having somebody who's different, it's more the way he said, well, look, I'm above this. I'm better than this. And that, to me, is the persona he's given off for the most part, Jamie, less so than being associated with Donald Trump, which certainly doesn't help, and the vaccination issue. Yeah, I think that is, I mean, that's a, that's a back burner issue for most fans who follow the PGA. That's not what is driving this, right? And it's, you know, maybe for some people it is, but overall it's exactly what you're saying. It's the arrogance, it's the attitude, it's all of that. And I, I do think Brooks Kepka helped kind of spur it along a little bit by coming out and 
you know, kind of being the face of the, the anti-Bryson DeChambeau movement, right? Like, I think that encouraged some people to kind of think, oh, yeah, man, like, I don't really like this guy. When Brooks Kepka kind of made it public how he feels about him. Jordan and Langley says, you guys are such babies, no big deal. Should Canucks fans not saying, no, 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 hey, hey, goodbye? No, it's different, and it's context. And there are certain things that are accepted, and there are certain things that are not. And, hey, you can call me a baby if you want, Jordan. I think dealing with people in tough moments, you got to use a little bit of class. And that fan didn't. And, and what makes it more gutless to me, and, again, does anything really happen when somebody says something? No, it doesn't. But what makes it gutless to me is the account of waited till he walked by, made sure the back was turned, but made sure he could hear, and then yelled it. What does that say about the person doing it, Jordan? You want to talk about a baby? That's a baby. You want to be a big, tough guy? Say it to his face. Yeah, it, it, it's it's just a... It's a crummy move by the fan. That's all there is to it. And again, it's not saying it's the worst thing that's ever happened to anyone or anything like that. But just like, come on, what are you doing? Have have some more sense. Give your head a shake in that moment. Keep those texts coming. Agree, disagree. We're happy to involve them in the conversation. We encourage debate on this show. We always will. Jamie, is it going too far to say that Cam Newton and his cut and the fact that vaccination, or in this case, not being vaccinated is a part of it, does it have an opportunity to be a somewhat somewhat lesser Rudy Gobert moment for NFL players? I think it does. I think there's got to be a lot of players now. I mean, it's happening on cut day, so you could say it's too late for a lot of guys who are on the roster bubble, right? But we know, you know, there's still opportunities to get picked up by teams after this. There's still opportunities for roster movement and, and for players who are cut to find a home. It's got to be a wake-up call for some of them, right? Let's say, hey, Cam Newton, former MVP. Everyone thought he was a lock to start in week one at quarterback for the Patriots. If, you know, not not just because of his vaccination status, but in part because of his vaccination status, he can be cut and he can be waived and out looking for a job. Man, that could probably happen to me too. And maybe I'm going to reconsider my position here. Rudy Gobert was a big wake-up moment for North America. Oh, this is real. It's affecting sports. It's shutting down these entities. Oh, boy, maybe I should be a little more concerned about it. It's obviously not going to be that from a social perspective, but I agree with what you just said. I think there will be players looking around saying, oh, they might actually cut a big name, and that might have something to do with it. Look, Jamie, you probably know people. I know I know people for sure that work in companies where those companies have said, look, we're not firing anybody because of what they choose or choose not to do for vaccination. But they have put, if you want to call them consequences or parameters in place, much like the NFL. So the companies I'm talking about have said to some of their employees, look, as of whatever date it is this fall, if you are doubly vaccinated, you will be allowed to come back to work. If you're not, you'll have to work from home. And that may be a competitive disadvantage as viewed by some in their company. But they've said, we're going to create what we believe is the most safe working environment possible. And if you're not willing to go to every measure of safety, we can't invite you into that environment. You can still be a part of our company or you're not allowed to travel or whatever it is. And then people have a decision to make. Yes. And that's that's largely the 
the stance and the move that the NFL has taken as well, right? Where it's trying, you're trying to give incentives, you're trying to put certain consequences and ramifications in place. And we should also, you know, talking about a potential wake-up moment, I mean, we should mention there was a similar, not nearly as high profile, I understand, but in the CFL today, you know, the Edmonton Elks, who have been dealing with their own COVID issues in recent, in recent days, they released uh, a Canadian offensive starting lineman, Jacob Ruby, today. And they said it was specifically because of a breach of COVID protocols on his, on his part. And obviously that is the team trying to send a message saying, Hey, we've already had to deal with this once. We've already had a game postponed once. We do not want this to happen again. And we are willing to get rid of people because they are, they are not taking this seriously. So I think that's an example of Edmonton, you know, explicitly stepping up and trying to send a message to the rest of its players that there will be consequences if you do not follow the rules here. And just so we're clear, if you don't follow the CFL or you don't happen to pay attention to what the Elks do on their offensive line, which probably is a lot of you, he started at left guard every game this season. Yeah. This isn't this isn't a guy who was like just on the he started at left guard for them each game. And I haven't seen the details on how he violated COVID protocol, but this was a team that was in a ten day isolation period. The way the press release reads, like the logical deduction is at some point here in the last 10 days, he did something he wasn't supposed to do. And because of that, and because he puts us all at further risk, it might cost us some dough here, you're out. Yeah. And, and as you can attest to, Scotty, you know, again, okay, left guard, what, what does that really hurt them? You know, a, a starting Canadian offensive lineman in the CFL is a big deal, right? Like, you have to start a certain number of Canadians. If you have one who's really good on your offensive line, that's a valuable piece to your team. CFLPA is still deciding whether or not it is going to appeal Jacob Ruby's release. Fortunately for the Elks today, all of their tests came back negative. Some players and staff were allowed to return to the facility. All systems are go for the team to return tomorrow, minus the players who are still in the protocol. That's the update on that situation. Now, obviously, the Cam Newton story, part of it is vaccination-related. But that's not the whole story. It's probably not the biggest component of the story. The biggest component of the story is Mac Jones outplayed Cam Newton in the preseason, and they feel he is ready to go. He is the face of their franchise at quarterback moving forward. They're going to make him the day one starter, and that's the bigger component to this. I didn't think he was going to be that. I thought he'd take over at some point this year. They run the offense in entirely different ways. If you've watched the Patriots, if you've listened to those who cover the team, Jamie, they've told you the entire way. Look, Mac Jones is going to allow them to run parts of their offense that they're not going to run with Cam Newton because they have a different skill set and vice versa. But they want to run the offense the way that it runs through Mac Jones eventually. It's just when is he going to get there? Apparently he's there now. Yeah, he is there right now. They they saw enough in preseason, in exhibition games, in training camp. They said, you know what? He gives us the better chance to win. And you're right. It comes down to fit and how they want to do the offense in New England. And they looked at it and just said, okay, hey, this guy, he has the skills we need. I, I still think there's overall questions about his ceiling as a quarterback. Is he ever going to be you know, an all-pro guy, a pro bowl guy that you feel really good about, who you think can elevate your team? Maybe not. But the flip side of that is – he came kind of NFL ready, and we saw that. We've seen that already in preseason that, yeah, he is ready to step up and be the quarterback for an NFL team. It might not be flashy all the time, but at least they think he can meet a baseline to give them success this year.
And we all know that there's a big difference between preseason and regular season, the looks he's going to see, the personnel he's going to see, all of those different things. We all understand that, but they felt he's far enough along to turn the keys over to him now. It's interesting when you look at the first five quarterbacks off the board, and he was the fifth, but they're all first-rounders. Two of them were going to start unequivocally from day one, and they are going to. Trevor Lawrence and Zach Wilson, one and two off the board. Trey Lance comes in at number three, and he's a much different situation because he goes to a team that has a very strong roster, has a quarterback who's already gone to a Super Bowl, and while his ceiling isn't ultimately as high as they would like Trey Lance's to be in San Francisco, Jimmy Garoppolo's floor is a lot higher than other situations. So Lance and Justin Fields, who's in Chicago, found themselves in sort of a similar situation. And look, Garoppolo, his floor is higher than Andy Dalton's right now, but two guys, they are less athletic than the the rookies coming in behind them, they'll run the offense a different way, but they've got a ton of snaps under center. We know what they are. We can bring these guys along slowly. But the argument for the rookie has always been athleticism over tenure, athleticism over experience, ceiling over floor. Upside, that's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's been the argument there. It was the opposite in yes. New England, wasn't yeah, it? It was, it was, the, it was the exact opposite. Yeah, Mac Jones, he's the less athletic quarterback, and yeah, he's eventually, we think, going to be better but cam newton gives us this this flash that right now and ever mac jones is never going to ever have from an athletic point of view so that has been part of the question with mac jones the lack of athleticism or the perceived lack of athleticism former nfl quarterback turned espn analyst dan orlovsky commented on that today and said this Lack of athleticism, because where we are with the quarterback position in the NFL, and and it matters. It does. It's a big deal. Only if you aren't a superhero in a lot of other things. And I've said this leading up to the draft. Yeah, I would love a guy that's crazy athletic. But if you aren't, you better be elite in a lot of different attributes that matter playing the position. One, do you have a brain that's super fast? Two, is your footwork elite when it comes to matching up your lower half with your upper half, meaning the, the ability to play quick in the pocket and have that married to your arm and your motion? Three, can you change the tempo and the trajectory of the ball? Four, do you have ridiculous ball placement? He's got all that stuff. So, you, you, like, there's, there's Trey Lance, incredible athlete. He doesn't have those things. Now, he's got some stuff skill and trait-wise you go, man, he just does stuff that others can't. But when you have all those other attributes that are so good that Mac does, and this is why I had so for me is because I just watched him play and I go, that's what it looks like, man. Like, that's what it looks like. That's Dan Orlovsky. He's been high on Mac Jones. Since he's watched him play in the preseason, he has personally called for Jones to start over Cam Newton. Bill Belichick obviously agrees. And back to your point about how this was kind of the inverse of a normal situation we see, right, with a rookie quarterback coming in where the the rookie quarterback is the young, athletic, with super high upside, and, and that's what ultimately gets the team to make a move. You know, that's why I thought Mac Jones would spend a lot of time on the bench this year watching Cam Newton because he doesn't have that same kind of tantalizing upside that a Trey Lance or a Justin Fields has, which creates this excitement and this pressure in the fan base to the point where, okay, look, we just got to go with the guy and see what his actual ceiling is and see if he can get there. Mac Jones doesn't have that element, but you heard, as you heard from Orlovsky, he's also much, much closer to his ceiling already, and he can do a lot of things with his arm to kind of counteract that lack of athleticism. 
Tyler says everyone is pointing at his vaccination status. Come to grips with the fact that Cam Newton is an overrated QB. He hasn't been in the top 20 quarterbacks in the league for five years. People are pointing at his vaccination status, Tyler, as part of the decision, but not the main part of the decision. The main part of the decision is a football decision. Yep. And we've said this before, and you can see the proof of that in Indianapolis right now. Carson Wentz is not vaccinated. Carson Wentz is the unequivocal starter for the right. Colts, assuming he's not on the COVID list when they open the season next week. Yeah, Kirk Cousins, same thing. Lamar Jackson, same thing. If you're the clear-cut number one, you're our guy for the whole season if healthy, yeah, your vaccination status isn't entering into thing. It's it's not it's not challenging your spot on the roster, but as soon as you're in a battle, as soon as there's any sort of debate on from a football perspective, yeah, it absolutely enters into things. It enters into things the same way having a lingering hamstring injury would enter into things, right? Because it threatens your availability for the team. And it has to do with more than just your own availability. It has to do with whether or not you might cause risk to others' availability. It also has to do with perception in the locker room. It's a position yep. of leadership. And whether you agree with the Patriots or not, if their feeling is, look, we need our leaders to adhere to certain things, and we know that's kind of been the line in New England for a really long time, Jamie. That's, like, that's how that operation rolls. And if part of what they think their leader should be doing is – is encouraging their teammates to take every precaution possible to give them the most competitive advantage they can gain, which is being vaccinated in the NFL this year. Whether you agree with vaccination or not, the NFL has made it very clear, those who are vaccinated enjoy advantage over those who are not. Teams who are vaccinated enjoy advantage over those who are not. That's a real thing. That threatens wins and losses. And I thought uh, Doug Farrar made a really interesting point on our show earlier in the last hour when we talked to him by saying, you know, the coaches are required to be vaccinated, but the players aren't. And so it's not as if you can kind of, as an unvaccinated player, you're not going to have an ally on the coaching staff, right? Because they've all been required to get vaccinated. So they look at it and say, well, I had to do it. Why can't you do it for the good of the team? Marcus and Gibson says, Lance, Fields, Jones all make the playoffs this year, making it the year of the rookie QB. I may be wrong on this, and I could be corrected during the break, but would that be the first time since the 2012 quarterback class when Russell Wilson, Andrew Luck, and RG3 all ended up in the playoffs? Yeah, I'd have to go back and look, but that sounds correct. That's certainly the year that stands out when you're thinking about rookie quarterbacks. Somebody texting in Cam Newton will get an offer from another team. We'll see. He might. It's one of the questions I posed off the top of the show, and we've speculated on which team that might be and where he might land. It's certainly possible. He can play well enough to to have a gig in the NFL right now. He's not what he once was, but Cam Newton is, at worst, one of the best 64 quarterbacks in the yes. world. Oh, uh -huh. at worst. Right. Yeah, just purely on a football level, yeah. Whether it's backup, low-end start, or whatever it is, he has a spot in the NFL. However, there are complications. There are complications because Cam Newton has a big persona, and Cam Newton runs the offense a certain way, and that, to me, is the biggest one. You run the offense a certain way. Does our offense run the way you need it to run? Like, are we bringing in a like part behind a like part at quarterback? Yes, that's the big question, and that's probably why, you know, another factor why New England didn't want to just keep him around as a backup, right? Because they said, okay, if we go with Mac Jones as the starter, that means we're doing X, Y, and Z on offense. If we have to go to our backup, we don't want to have to change our entire offensive scheme because it's Cam Newton. He's going to face that same issue for a lot of other teams around the NFL, too. 
Listeners bringing it today as they do every day. We encourage you to get in on the conversation. 650-650. It's the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. You know who's going to bring it? Adnan Verk, and he'll do it next right here on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Jesse Barfield providing the confirmation there. <laughs> he he at one point held the title of Rintoul's favorite player, Jesse Barfield. There you go. Mm-hmm. Who was your first favorite player? He was my first favorite baseball player, Jesse Barfield, and then very quickly he was joined by Tim the Rock Reigns. My first favorite player was Roberto Alomar growing up. War number 12, played second base, uh, you know, right in those 92, 93 Jays years was when I really got into the sport. So, yeah, he was my first. In another edition of Who's Older? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <Yes. laughs> just in case, just in case you weren't sure, Greg Ballack chiming in my ear with John Olrood was his favorite player. Back good choice, good choice. Had the sweet swing coming out of Washington State. It's Rintoul, it's Jamie Dodd. One final segment on the show today. Adnan Verk will join this party in mere moments. Blue Jays win. Not surprisingly, they're playing the Orioles. Everybody beats the Orioles. In fact, if you don't beat the Orioles, that's the story as opposed to the other way around. Jamie, this is the second of three against the Orioles for the Jays tonight. They'll play again tomorrow. They've then got three with Oakland. They have four with the New York Yankees. I know I'm asking you to do some very quick math here. Oakland and New York are two of the teams Toronto is chasing with its very slim playoff hopes right now. How many of these next nine games, two against the O's, three against the Oakland A's, four against the Yankees, what is the minimum number of wins that would convince you the Jays still have some semblance of a shot? It's got to be seven, right? Like, win these two against Baltimore, two or three against Oakland, three or four against the Yankees. That feels like the only way, the the bare minimum they need to do to still be able, you know, in a week's time to say, hey, we're still in this race, guys. Yeah, I said it could get down to six. Greg and I hashed this out a little bit during the break. My original answer was seven, and boy, that makes you feel like it's, uh, somewhat of a legitimate shot. I could see six potentially if you won the series with Oakland and maybe split with the New York Yankees, depending right. on what happens with them and their other series. Baltimore sweep is a must. And look, the Jays aren't the only team chasing, and that's part of the problem here. And that's always the problem. when you, Whether we're talking NHL or NFL or, or, in this case, Major League Baseball, it's about the number of teams you have to go past. It's not like Toronto's the first team on the outside. Like, there's a bunch of teams in the, in the ladder up to a wild card spot. Well, and because, you know, they've they've made a little bit of ground on Seattle, right? So they're they're Seattle and the Jays are both four and a half back right now. So technically the only team they have to well, they have to jump Boston or Oakland first and then Boston, right? They're two they're two and a half games back of Oakland, four and a half back of Boston. So they have to leapfrog Oakland and then chase down the Red Sox. So right now it's only two teams, which makes it a little more more manageable, but you're right. It's not as if, okay, you know, you go in and you sweep Oakland and you flip spots with them. You still got to, to, to the Red Sox to chase down after that. Yeah, it would be nice. It would be sweet if it happens. I would absolutely love it, Jamie, but it feels like it's slipping away here. And look, Mariners fans probably feel the exact same way, but Mariners expectations this year were nowhere near as high as Toronto's were. No, I mean, and that, 
man, that poor Seattle fan base and organization has been such a tough go for them. Yeah, they had that nice start to the year, but you always kind of felt like there was a little bit of smoke and mirrors. So I don't even know. Does does this qualify as a disappointing season for Mariners fans, given how many disappointing seasons they've had recently? I have no idea. Well, and I think that's what it is. I think it's that they all kind of get lumped into one. So it's this yeah. length, lengthy disappointment for Mariners fans. And I've said this before, though – Mariners not the team I grew up watching. I want the Mariners to make the playoffs because my dream is to be able to go to a playoff game between the Jays and the Mariners in Seattle so I don't have to fly all the way across the country. Like That's <laughs> what I would like to do, Jamie. Yeah, that would be great. I mean, I have nothing. I'm a Jays fan, too. I have nothing against the Mariners at all. I would love to see them just for their fans' sake, for Seattle's yes. sake, to have a nice run at some point. I would love that to happen. Are we were we over eager? Were we over optimistic about the Blue Jays? Maybe something we can put to Adnan Verk when he joins us here momentarily. He of course is an MLB host on the MLB Network, NHL Network as well. So perhaps a reaction to the offer sheet this week and the news that Carolina had put some put some money down on Jesperi yep. Kokinyemi. See what he has to say about that as well. It's a decision we're not going to get anytime soon. And and look, it's still a fascinating story to kick around because of the way that they went about this and and the strategic way that they employed the offer sheet as we discussed in detail yesterday. And every sleep that goes by, I'm more interested in what Mark Bergevin is doing on the phone. And the great thing about it is you feel that even if they do make the shocking decision, which, you know, wouldn't necessarily be shocking in this context, but usually when we think of offer sheets is the shocking decision to accept the compensation. It, the story's not over then because you also get the sense they're immediately going to turn around and try to trade those assets, right? So which creates a, a, a lot more intrigue, right? Okay, well, what do they do now that they have the first and the third round pick? Tim in Vancouver says, my first favorite player was Fred McGriff, only to be devastated to have him traded for the guy who then became my next favorite player, Roberto Alomar coming over in that deal with the Padres back in the day, if I am not mistaken. It's Scott Rentoul. It's Jamie Dodd. We've had a consistent text over the last couple of days as we await the presence of Adnan Verk, who wants us to talk about why Pedersen and Hughes aren't signed. Why aren't you guys talking about the fact they're not signed? Why have the Canucks not gotten down to business? Jamie, I have a pretty simple answer, but I'll take yours first before I skew it in any way. Well, there are RFAs. RFAs often drag on to September. That happens a lot around the NHL. The Canucks are far from the only team to be in that situation. Yeah, I agree with you. There's no time stand. But there's no, no, there's time no deadline. pressure point here. Right. There's no deadline. A deadline spur action. The only way that you look like you you didn't get it done right is if what happens to Kokanyemi happens to you. And Canucks fans will cross their fingers. It doesn't happen with Pedersen, but he has to sign that sheet as well. Adnan Verk of the Major League Baseball Network and NHL Network joins us now. And I'm not sure. I can't tell through the screen or through this line, Adnan, whether you're wearing a Jalen Hurts jersey or Gardner Minshew jersey right now. <laughs> uh, Scott, Jamie, great to talk with you guys. Thank you for knowing about my allegiance to the Philadelphia Eagles. I am a little bit excited about Minshew Mania. As a matter of fact, my eldest son was just asking, wait, what does this mean for Jalen Hurts? I said, listen, he's a number three quarterback. Right? Technically, Minshew is going to be the backup to Joe Flacco, who is the backup to Jalen Hurts. But, hey, Minshew has definitely had some moments of excitement. And uh, who knows? It's good to have some depth in Philadelphia. You know, a six-round pick is not much to give up. That's like a conditional you know, a pick for a, a quarterback. That's not much. So we'll see. I'll get my mustache going. And it's a lot cooler to cheer for either Jalen Hurts or Gardner Minshew than it is to cheer for Joe Flacco, quite frankly. Yeah, I mean, Joe Flacco has seen better days. I mean, there, there was a quote someone sent me of uh, 
Merrill Hodge, who I worked for the DSP, a great guy, got the high collar. And when she was talking about Joe Flacco being like one of the great quarterbacks in the league, you're like, oof, that was a few years ago. I mean, listen, he did have his moment there in the Super Bowl, but Flacco has seen better days. And, and who knows, maybe Minshew will actually pass Flacco as the backup quarterback. I don't think that's uh, necessarily that's Joe's to lose. I agree with that wholeheartedly. Let's talk a little baseball here. Were we overly optimistic to say, look, our standard of expectation for this Toronto Blue Jays team, and this is the start of the year. This isn't just when some of the young players, Vladdy in particular, got hot. My standard of expectation is make the playoffs this year. Was I overly optimistic? No, I don't think so. I mean, listen, they had aspirations of doing so. What, what gets challenging here for Toronto is this. It's very easy to say, hey, they've got this great young collection of talent. They're building something special. They're going to be a dynasty. But here's the reality. They're always going to be hard-pressed to do battle with those teams because the Yankees aren't going anywhere. Like, even in this year where they were, like, four games over 500 and the entire world was burning them to a stake, they can be a team that goes out and makes moves. They get Gallo and Rizzo, and all of a sudden they catch fire, you know, 13-game win streak, longest in 61, best run in 80 years, and now the Yankees are going to the playoffs. Boston was expected to be a 500 team, right? Like, this team was not good last year. They're pitching a suspect. Alex Cora is unbelievable. When should we manage of the year? All of a sudden the Red Sox were in first much of the year. I still think they're going to make the playoffs. And then there's Tampa, who every year you discard at your own peril, and they're about to win 100 games. Might be the best race team we've ever seen. You used their pitching staff and their depth, but it's their offense that has really been noteworthy. So what does that mean for Toronto? You can't every year say, well, you know what, we've got some good young players who are building something. But yeah, you've got three teams to catch. Like, thank God the Orioles are the Orioles. So I don't think that's unrealistic to go into this year if you're Toronto and say, hey, we've got to contend, we've got to push. They're not going to get there, I don't think, right? Four and a half games out, 32 games ago, the odds are not in their favor. But anybody who questions Jay's management knows what they're thinking is by one move, that Jose Barrios trade. They gave up two prospects. Reed Foley, okay, fine. Austin Martin's supposed to be a stud. They gave him up for a year and a half of Jose Barrios. So, you know, the Jays clearly believe that that window is a lot smaller than people realize. It's not a team looking to contend three or four years from now. They're trying to do it this year. They're trying to do it next year and the year after. I actually think it's a two- to three-year window. So I do think getting to the playoffs is imperative sooner rather than later. You know, Adnan, a lot of Jays fans I know just seeing the reaction on Twitter and to our station, they've been very frustrated with Charlie Montoyo. And I think whenever a team scuffles for an extended stretch like the Jays have been, there's going to be fingers pointed at the manager. Is that fair in your mind, or is that just a case of fans casting around for a scapegoat as the season has turned more and more disappointing here? You know, I found doing a pie chart of blame. You know, I'm looking more at their bullpen. I mean, I just think their bullpen really kind of cost them. I do think Montoya may have made some suspect moves at times, especially with that bullpen. But you've only got one guy you can really trust in, Romano. Because, I mean, listen, you signed Kirby H to a one-year $8 million deal, it blew up in your face, right? Merriweather got hurt. After that, you can't find the answer. You're stumbling looking for the answer. You go and get Brad Hand, which makes you think of Seinfeld. But I've got Hand, and you're going <laughs> to need it. They thought Brad Hand would be their guy. The guy's brutal. He's been absolutely awful since the All-Star break, whether it was at the Nationals and the Blue Jays. If they ponied up and got quick Kimbrell, maybe it's a different story. Then again, Kimbrell has struggled coming from the Cubs, the White Sox, specifically in an eighth-inning role. So bullpens are notoriously volatile. They're very unpredictable. I don't crush Montoya a ton personally. I think it's their bullpen. And to be honest, it's their offense, too. You know, so often we get seduced by the numbers. But look at the August numbers of their key players. Vlad Jr. had his worst month of the season. Bo Bichette had an extended slump. So did Teoscar Hernandez. Like, they had a nine-game stretch there, which the Jays were only averaging, like, 3.2 runs per game. You're not going to win many games no matter who's pitching. The real revelation has been how good their starters have been. Like, since the All-Star break, you're like, wow, 
Like, it's not just Ryu. Barrios had three bad starts, was great in his last start. Robbie Ray should win the Cy Young. I mean, he's top three right now. It's amazing. If I had a vote, Garrett Cole wins the Cy Young for the first time. But I got Robbie Ray right there with Lance Lynn. So the fact that the Jays were able to hit on a one-year, $8 million deal and have a guy who's top three Cy Young is incredible. Robbie Ray last night became the, the fastest ever um, in terms of, sorry, the most strikeouts to 1,000 innings. 1,241 was the number. He's the fifth Blue Jays starter ever with 200 strikeouts and the first lefty to do so. They hit big time on that deal. Marcus Samuel, one year, $18 million. That guy's going to be top five in MVP voting. They hit big on that. But again, here's the problem for Toronto. So you get these great deals in Semyon and Ray. Now are you going to pony up three- or four-year deals, or is it going to be too expensive? That's why this whole concept of, ah, Toronto can afford to wait. No, they really can't. They've got to win now because, you know what, those young guys are going to get very expensive in terms of arbitration. Vlad Jr., Bichette, Teoscar. So Montoyo takes some of the heat, sure, but he's not the first guy I point my finger at. Well, and I wanted to ask you, because as you said, you know, I think what a lot of fans have realized this year is, okay, the competitive window is not some at some distant point in the future. It's right now. It's next year, maybe the year after that. Given that context, look, as you just detailed, Robbie Ray has made himself a ton of money this year with what he's done on the mound and where he's going to finish in AL Cy Young voting. Do the Jays kind of have to step up to the plate and be the one that gives him his next contract, given how important these next couple of years are for the team? Uh, listen, I think so. I, I think he's figured it out. I always liked him. The Diamondbacks, he's a really good number two behind uh, you know, the other guys they had there. Um, he gets traded. The real issue was, of course, his walks. I mean, his control was a disaster. The guy was you know, among the lead leaders who walks every year. And then, credit, credit to him, he fixed it. This year, all of a sudden, he's become an incredible strikeout pitcher. He's found the strike zone again. The walks have come down appreciably. He still gives up a lot of home runs. You know, he's your perfect pitcher for 2021. And in the era in which we see the ball soaring with home runs and we see a ton of strikeouts, well, Robbie Ray is your guy. But I do think so. I think if you're going to contend, and you've got two more years now of Ryu, you've got, obviously, Barrios for one more year. Ray is your guy. There's a strong threesome right there. You're adding Steven Matz. You know, Roark didn't work out. Hopefully, Nate Pearson at some point. I think the Jays are compelled to sign Robbie Ray. I really do. Adnan Verk, Major League Baseball Network, NHL Network as well. He joins us today on Rental and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. What would be a bigger story in your mind, a Toronto or a Seattle making a run and somehow getting into the postseason or Boston falling out? I think Boston falling out would be actually a pretty good story right now. You know, uh, a friend of mine was telling me, like, oh, what a, what a big disappointment that would be. And I go, listen, first of all, no one expected them to be in this position. Let's make that clear. I did not hear one person saying Boston was going to the playoffs this year. The best bet was – 85 wins but of course if you have a great first half then that changes your perception and for much of the first half they were in first place neck and neck with the Rays. so if they were to actually fall out of the playoff picture even with two wild card spots from that lofty person at AL East, to me that would be a genuine surprise because they do have an offense that's fourth in terms of runs scored you know, their bullpen's really falling apart barnes has been terrible in the second half starter wise evaldi's really good uh chris sale being back is a huge spot for them but Eduardo Rodriguez is an ERA around five. You know, Pavetta we love because he's Canadian, but he's inconsistent. So I think at this point, if Boston would actually miss the playoffs, I would be genuinely surprised. I think it's going to be Yankees, Red Sox, one game playoff. Shades of 78 and Bucky Dent. I mean, what a great blessing that is for ESPN who's going to air that one game wild card. I think it's going to be Red Sox and the Yankees. Um, and I think the Rays win the division. But for Oakland, they've fallen off. Mariners with that run differential, you say, God, they really shouldn't be this good. So that doesn't make any sense. And the Jays, as discussed, just have not stepped up in August. 
I haven't checked the Major League Baseball wildcard rules yet, but if that game comes to fruition, are they both able to lose? <laughs> Can we make That's that a, happen? It, 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 it's a great godsend for, like, I think Major League Baseball, of course, and it's two incredible fan bases. But you're right. Anybody in the AL East, you know, if you're a Jays fan, O's fan, uh, you know, or a Rays fan, or even just people who hate those teams, which is pretty much everybody, you're right. You, you kind of hope for – Hey, can they go 16 innings and like their bullpen's completely blown out? So whoever wins the game will get dusted off by Tampa when it comes to you know the division series. I think that probably be the best bet. But I, I do think if you're a baseball fan, Garrett Cole versus Chris Sale in the Bronx has the makings of being pretty electrifying. It's a very good thing for baseball. The San Francisco Giants being as good as they are is a very good thing for baseball as well. As we flip over to the National League, we all know the Dodgers are loaded. The fact that the Giants are still a game and a half up, it's somewhat of a surprise. The strength of that roster, are they good enough to to, to get it done in the postseason? Do you see enough there? You know, it's funny. I'm not going to be the guy to discredit them because all year I've been waiting for the Giants to fall apart, and they haven't. So eventually I say to myself, if they go 500 the rest of the way, they're a 100-win team. Like we're talking about a Giants team that's up there with one of the great Giants teams ever. You don't just cruise to the century mark and all of a sudden be susceptible. So what I like about them is their balanced offense. Buster Posey's having one of his best seasons. Brandon Belt uh, has been really good. Brandon Crawford is having his best season. That's why he got signed to a two-year deal. They don't have a lot of youth aside from Donovan Solano. Like It's very much 30-plus. Like, even Yaz was a rookie a couple of years ago, but Mike Kostremski is a guy who's an older rookie. So they've got a really good offense. We figured that out. And then they've added, obviously, Chris Bryant, who gives them a huge job. I think he's going to get $200 million as a free agent. And maybe San Francisco ponies up that money for Scott Boris Klein, and he stays there in San Francisco. You look at their pitching. Gosh, what I loved, aside from DeGrom, to me, he was the Cy Young of the first half of the season. The reason I love him is I love the splitter. You know, I love 80s baseball, Bruce Souter. You think of those guys, Mike Scott used to throw a great splitter. So I love the fact that Gosman throws a splitter. Shohei Otani throws a splitter. But Gosman's been not as good in the second half. He's fallen off a little bit. But then you've got, you know, Logan Webb's been ridiculous. Di Sclafani. Like when Johnny Quinto's your number five starter, you go, wow, San Francisco really hit. And again, shout out to a Canadian, Farhan Zaidi. Their GM did an amazing job as far as getting guys and, and reclamation projects and making them good pitchers. All of which is to say, balanced offense, excellent starting pitching, probably an underrated bullpen. I think San Francisco is going to be a formidable out. And all year, we've been waiting for L.A. to overtake them. Think about this. The Dodgers won 18-21. They were four games back at the beginning of that run and are now only a game and a half out. They had an incredible run. They were only to shave off two and a half games of the division lead. That's an indication of just how strong San Francisco has been. And then, as you mentioned, the Giants trying to hold off the Dodgers to claim the the regular season National League West crown. Even if the Dodgers do end up in that one-game wild card because they can't track the Giants down, is L.A. still the favorite to come out of the National League? That's the thing. All of which is to say, I think San Francisco, you know, if they win the division, obviously they're in a good spot. But L.A., like, how can you argue with that team? I mean, Max Muncie is runner-up for MVP right now behind Fernando Tatis. Chris Taylor plays six different positions for them. You know, they've had a year in which injuries to Corey Seager and Cody Bellinger, like two of their big stars, and if they don't miss a beat, uh, you know, they lose Trevor Bauer with this off-the-field situation. They lose um, Dustin May, and yet, no problem, we'll go and get Max Scherzer. Walker Buehler's going to win the Cy Young. He's the best pitcher in the National League. When you can trot out as your threesome, Walker Buehler, Max Scherzer, Clayton Kershaw, I know Kershaw's been out. That's still a pretty incredible three pitchers right there. Maybe a little Tony Gosson, David Price, sure. And the offense, I think, like I said, you add in Justin Turner, Mookie Betts, who's remarkable, they'll score their runs. So 
it's funny, if you handicap it, I say, hey, don't underestimate San Francisco, but the Dodgers are still awfully special as the defending champions. Hey, and then I got to get your reaction to one of the, uh, I think, more more surprising Major League Baseball stories this year, which is the New York Mets and Javi Baez and some other players on the New York Mets coming out and declaring war on their fans by giving them the thumbs down sign. Now, the, Baez has come out and apologized. They said they're not going to do it anymore. What did you make of that whole situation with the Mets? Well, Javi Baez to me is a really enigmatic, confounding presence. At times, I absolutely love him because I love his flamboyance and his flair, especially on defense. He's one of the great taggers ever, which is to say the way he tags a guy, or his base running is also electrifying. I mean, those aspects of his game are a ton of fun, and he hits a lot of home runs. He's going to hit you 30 home runs every year. But it's also maddening how much he strikes out. A 35.4% strikeout rate is abysmal. Like that, 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 just, that just can't happen. His on-base percentage is 290. You can't get on pace less than 30% of the time. And yet at one point, apparently the Cubs offered $160 million and he said no. One of my favorite games is how much money is Baez going to get. I'm yeah. predicting six years, $16 million, right? That's six years, $96 million. And I talked to a buddy of mine, pretty locked in. He goes, he'll get a little more. Might be like a Tigers that might overpay for him, maybe the Rangers, but it could be a six years, $120 million guy. All of which is to say $20 million a year for a guy who openly boos his own home fans. And I get it. He hasn't been in New York that long. He's still maybe viewed as a Cub. Maybe his salary's not in Chicago. But you talk about a way not to endear yourself to the Big Apple faithful. I mean, he had one game 0 for 5. He struck out five times. Like, he has not been very strong with the Mets. I think he has four home runs so far in New York. And to have that kind of a celebration after hitting a 440-foot home run, I mean, it's awfully idiotic. There's no other way to put it. Why would you bite the hand that feeds you? I can't imagine Sandy Olsen was happy. I can't imagine their deep-pocketed owner, Steve Cohen, was happy. I would think immediately right now, I don't think they're resigning Javi Baez. I know he's Lindor's guy, but God, what a move to run your way out of town. You are the... You aren't the most busy person in this business, but you are among them. So we really appreciate you giving us a little time here today, Adnan. Thank you very much for this. I hope we can do it again soon. Absolutely. Pleasure to talk to both of you guys. And listen, if we're not busy, we're we're struggling for work. So I'm glad I've got uh, someone who's willing to listen to me. I appreciate you both. Thank you. That is Adnan Verk, working for the MLB Network, NHL Network as well. I wanted to get this in before the end of the show. It's long been rumored that Ben Simmons is going to be on his way out of Philadelphia and hey are the Sixers going to make that decision he's now told the Sixers he wants out doesn't intend to report to training camp trade me yeah it's been dragging on and on and on kind of the the NBA version of the Jack Eichel saga although it doesn't have the same health uh issues but this is the latest ultimatum we've heard like I'm not even showing up if you thought you could get me there and maybe I'll play back some of my value nope that's not happening I'm not reporting yeah, maybe a shooting replacement, but not a disc replacement for Ben Simmons. No, no. I don't know if they, I don't know if they have a surgery for that though. Jamie, excellent show as per usual. Thank you very much. You're in all week. Josh Elliott, Wolf, double duty today. He produced the morning show on 650, and he produced this program. Greg Ballack, steady as always, just like John Olroyd. You know you're going to get a quality at bat. Big ups to Greg back at Mission Control. We will turn you over to what looks to be a football-heavy edition of Bick and the Boss that's coming your way next. We'll talk tomorrow. Have a great Tuesday.